episode two. Thank you for listening. If you have not heard already, listen to episode one. We had a great conversation last week. And today we are starting off fresh with being Black and Haitian and celebration of Black History Month. And boy, do we have a good conversation for y'all. We have our first guest of the season, Dr. Marion Evans. And I had heard that she's a fantastic teacher. I also heard that we would need three hours to talk with her. Um, but man, do we have a great time and get into some really important stuff in this conversation. Very much. And this conversation will be a continuation next week with the part two of being Black in um, higher education. And we will be having different guests for that conversation. But today's conversation was particularly powerful. We talked about what's going on in the current news cycle with Cornell West being denied tenure at Harvard University. Mm-hmm. We talked about Jody Shaw at Smith College and the pushback from diversity in education work, you know, with trainings and how some folks are taking this new spin on what's happening in higher ed. Yeah. And whether, you know, what's the best approach to changing and to changing culture. Um, And I think that Dr. Evans really just has a beautiful vision for what the university could look like and the kind of work that she puts in with students and in the community in terms of public health, like, man, she's a great one. Very much. And this conversation is important because we want to shine a light on Black faculty. Mm -hmm. It's important for representation. It's important for students of color to see those that look like them in the classroom, particularly in our sciences. So talking with faculty that are in the sciences, that are in our institution to see what is the culture on campus? What is it like being a Black professional, not just in higher ed, but at SCSU? That's right. All right. And make sure that you follow us on, on at Real Talk SCSU on Instagram for the discussion. Uh, join in, talk to us, uh, but enjoy the conversation with Dr. Evans. Hello, welcome to Real Talk. Real Talk is about real conversations with real people regarding diversity in higher education. I am your co-host, Jamil Harp, a student activist. And I'm Casey Counselor, a professor in the Communication, Media, and Screen Studies Department at Southern Connecticut State University. All right, Jamel, let's go. All right, welcome to Real Talk. Today, we have a guest with us, our first guest of season two, Dr. Marion Evans. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about Dr. Evans. Uh, She was born and raised in Bridgeport, Connecticut, not unlike our our co-host here, Jamil Harp. She got a Bachelor of Arts from Swarthmore. Uh, She is a doctor of medicine. She got her her med degree from Penn State University. She did two residencies, obstetrics, gynecology, and anesthesiology. And then in 2015, almost 25 years later, she earned a master's in public health from Southern, uh, where she's currently with us here uh, as a tenured assistant professor, where she teaches undergrad, she teaches grad students, Um, She's a graduate coordinator. She's a very busy woman. Um, She's been a physician scientist um, at Yale. She's been the director of health and social services for the city of Bridgeport. Uh, She's been a fellow uh, with the Connecticut Health Foundation, the Community Leadership Program. She's traveled as an ambassador for public health to South Africa, to Cuba, Guatemala, uh, recently with students to Bermuda and coming soon in 2022, Puerto Rico with students. That's very exciting. Um, She has also served as a member of the Cathedral of the Holy Spirit in Bridgeport for 40 years, 40 years, and is just very community involved. She's won many, many, many awards. She's currently also on the board of directors. She's the chair of the Community Health Network of Connecticut Foundation. She's a member of the, the Greater New Haven Green Fund and New England Grassroots Environmental Fund. This is, I'm, I'm summarizing from the short version of this bio. And she describes herself as uh, tenacious, educated, professional, physician, researcher, scientist, scuba diver, professor, woman of faith, award winner, sister, daughter, caregiver, community activist, leader, mentor, and wife. Welcome Dr. Evans to the Real Talk podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I really appreciate it, you guys. It's always very hard to listen to people talk I about know. you. Yep. Yes. We are so excited to have you on today. You are our first guest. So exciting. I think it's so full circle for me, you know, to have a faculty member of color 
from Bridgeport, just like me, on for our first episode celebrating Black History Month, celebrating Black History Year. It's just full circle. So we're really happy to have you here. And just to start off, I'm curious, how are you doing with the pandemic, you know, being a public health professional, being a Black folk during this time period in America? How are you doing in general? So, Jamil, that's a great question. So um, let me just say that right before we went into full-fledged isolation quarantine and back in last March, I was actually in a classroom teaching um, at Gateway. I did part of the special project we had with Gateway, and I was teaching the Intro to Public Health class, which is one of my favorite classes because you can hook students, right? Like that is where we can hook students to become majors. And um, when all of this started and we started watching the coronavirus, you know, I showed my students where to go to to get that credible information and we followed it. And we were asking, my students were asking questions like, why aren't they making us wear masks yet? Way before, you know, it actually became, you know, a thing. And so, um, you know, the pandemic for me has been, as a professor, has been hard. Jamil, as a, as a professor, I love being in a classroom. I love that one-on-one with my students. Um, they, I get, I draw my energy, right, from my students. And so not to be there with them to see their facial expressions and things like that, that was pretty hard. So last semester, the fall semester, I actually did the high flex. Hmm. where some students were in the classroom and then some some were streaming in through um through through you know some sort of platform and it worked but there's some tweaks that we still hopefully I gave them some feedback and there's some tweaks that still need to be done some things I think weren't thought about from um from a professional standpoint I'll be glad to get back in the classroom to get that energy back um, there's just some things the way I teach that I cannot tap into. Um, I can't tap into when I'm on the computer. So I'll, I'll, I look forward to it. Personally, I'm a caregiver. So Jamil at home with my mother and my husband and, and cooked up at times. Uh, it was challenging. So I'm actually glad to be able to come back into my office. That's great to talk about this, but let me just put some things out there as far as, you know, being in higher ed in general, right? Mm -hmm. There's this this concept of perfectionism, right? That somehow things have to be perfect, right? And they don't. This is really messy work. This is lifelong work. This is hard work, right? That we didn't get to the place that we are with divisions in our society or culture you know, in a year or two, right? So we got here in 200, 400 years, right? Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. it's going to take a lot longer than what we as people normally like to think about um, to get to a place or to see, you know, substantial um, shift or change, but it is happening, right? It is happening. And so one of the things I think we are doing well is we're beginning that journey, right? It's not to say that we're perfect in it. It's not to say that things don't happen on our campus. Things are happening all over. And so some of the things that Jamil and I talked about when he called me up and wanted to talk to me about doing this was I was like, oh, did you hear about Cornell West, Mm -hmm. you know, this Mm -hmm. week and things like that, right? I mean, when you come to my office, one of his quotes is on my door. And then the quote says, justice is what love looks like in public. Right. Justice is what love looks like in public. In case our listeners don't right. know who Cornell West is, Dr. Evans, do you want to talk a little bit more about Cornell West's story and what's happening right now? Wow. So I'm not sure if I could do it all justice, <laughs> but I will I will make an attempt. So uh, Cornell West, he's a thought leader. He's at um, Harvard University. And one of the things I had this conversation with my husband the other day was, you know, when we see some things like this in the news that's going on. So Cornell West is a professor at Harvard, longtime thought leader, anti-racism worker, organizer. um, And there's probably a lot of other things that I could say. But right now he is a 
professor at Harvard, and I guess he went up for tenure and he did not get tenure. The story is, you know, being talked about right now that um, at Yale, Princeton, and I think it was a theological seminary as well that he's been tenured in the past. And then to have Harvard say, well, we'll give you a chairmanship and we'll, we'll, you know, increase your pay and whatever else, but we won't give you tenure. And so let me just say, for those who don't understand, when someone or a university professor gets tenure, it means that the university will invest in them, right? There's some other things that, that go on, but the university will invest in them as a person who to be on their, in their family circle of university. And it is really an investment, but it also is a designation that then helps you to sort of relax. It should give you some confidence about, say, slight confidence, not, not total confidence, <laughs> but slight confidence about a, a measure of job mm -hmm. security and things like that. What people forget is that Harvard is a private institution. And there are some differences in what private institutions do versus public institutions. Cornell West is one of these examples, but his story came out early this week, I believe, and it might have been even last week, at least got published um, in some of the, like the Chronicle of Higher Ed and, and a few other things. One of my colleagues and I, we, we're working on a piece right now that just got accepted for conference presentation. We worked on a proposal together that talks about not only the stress, but from a Black professor, um, and we wrote it around Black women professors, um, sometimes how we feel disrespected, devalued, and dismissed mm -hmm. many times in our circles. This is some of the things that also Cornell has talked about in his um, pursuit of tenure at Harvard. And so um, one of the things he's saying is that, um, I won't talk about what he believes, but one of the things he's saying is that he thinks that, or and I'm pretty sure politics has something to do with it in his stance. Mm -hmm. He has been a, a vocal critic on, uh, how can I say this? So uh, the, the Jewish, uh, Israeli, pa yeah, Palestine, uh, Palestinian yeah. and occupation. Yes. Mm. And so, um, and he has come out, you know, about that. And he, you know, has talked about, you know, where he stands and what he thinks um, should happen. And so there's probably a lot of, a lot more things that we don't even know that we will never read that's going on around this story. But it's very interesting, very interesting because he's a, a, a leading thought leader in the Black community and especially in the higher ed circles. The, the thing that comes to my mind is he is such a high profile scholar, public yep. scholar. He's got more than 20 books. And, yep. and the reason we're hearing about his case is because he is such a high profile person, you know, and it just makes you think like, well, what else is happening, you know, that we're not hearing right. about? And if this is happening to him, wow. Uh, you know, what are other folks dealing with? Yeah, because when I read when I read right. Cornell West's story, right, we're talking about a person that is, yes, a huge thought leader, someone that is very open politically and shares those opinions on academic levels, someone that has campaigned with Bernie Sanders, someone that is very much an important aspect of their community. And if we have someone with that level of education, that level of experience, right, from all the different Ivy League schools he has taught at to his own PhD, and that person cannot get tenure. What does that say for the state of higher education today when you could be Black and that much qualified and still not get the privilege of tenure, still not get the job security of tenure, but be offered all these other things? And so that's something that I questioned myself when I was reading the story as one of the examples of you know, maybe we have came far enough for a, a Black man to be in that position at Harvard, but how far have we got in general when we're thinking about weeding out racism yeah. in higher education or even how we are creating more division? I think you're right, Dr. Evans, about, you know, SESU has started the journey of weeding out racism. And I think universities in general across the country, but specifically ours, it's about looking at our universities' policies, who we are hiring, how we 
investing into Black faculty? How are we investing into our education to make our education diverse? And so right. it's really a mixture of things. And even looking at stories about creating more divisions, often when you know when you have diversity and equity and trainings, and you're talking about microaggressions and all these different things, people are resistant to that work. They're resistant to this understanding around you know, anti-racism and what does that mean? A good example of that is Jody Shaw, who works at worked at Smith College, who was forced to attend a critical race training. And I say forced, like she was just mandated to go. And she said, and I quote, particular and radically prejudiced behavior as a condition of my employment, that her attending that critical race training is basically anti-right. Um, it's not right for her to go there. It's almost like they're discriminating against her because she's a white person and all these other claims she has made. So even when we are trying to allow others to come to trainings to further educate us on other cultures and what's happening currently in academia, we're seeing there's a division, a growing division amongst many in many different universities. What's, what's the thoughts on that? I love it because <laughs> as a young person, you think that this is new. Oh, I'm sure none <laughs> so of this is new. <laughs> but, but I love it, right? Because it reminds us, right? One of the, the videos that I show in my women's health class when we start out the year with this is a, is a video around patriarchy. And Dr. Roy is a person that we feature in that video. And she says, rights that were once won can be reversed. Mm. And so we have to stay, stay vigilant, right? We have to remind younger generations and generations that come after us of all of the things that have happened and why it's important that we keep Roe versus Wade or that we keep, uh, you know, when you think about all of the, you know, sort of civil rights that were won and things like that. And so I think that that is really interesting, but I want you to know that it's not new, right? And if, if you're a community organizer, you understand that this is a given, right? That, that divisiveness, that there'll be people out there that are resisting just like we resist stuff, right? You know, we can talk about those things happening at other institutions and that, that institution, I believe you said, mentioned was Smith College, right? Once again, Smith College is a yes. private institution, right? private institution. What concerns me, we have stuff that happens here on our campus, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, it's not a private institution, right? There's always this conversation that comes up that talks about like, oh, well, you got to give people their rights. And when we became a, a, a smoke-free campus, I remember there were students who said, oh, well, you're impinging on my, my, my individual rights. And I remember... Um, one of the indigenous students coming to talk to me in my in my office as well. And I remember saying to people in public health, we have this sort of um, ethical dilemma all of the time, mm -hmm. right? The greater good versus individual rights. So whether it's around TB, whether it's around pandemic, right? We're seeing that right now to wear a mask, people who don't want to wear masks versus you know, all the people who will comply versus you'll always have that faction of people who will not because they feel that they have some kind of right. And when I have these conversations, especially from my sort of public health lens and perspective, I say we infringe on people's rights all the time, especially at a university. We tell you what kind of cult, if you agree to come here, right? You, there are certain grades we expect you to have. We tell you when to go to class, when class is over. We tell <laughs> you how you are to behave in class, what is acceptable behavior and what is not acceptable behavior, right? So we infringe on all kinds of rights all the time to create the environment of, of learning, right? And depending on the lens that people take, they'll say, oh, well, this is what we have to do in order to get our degree. Right? That's a solid, um, am I that's a solid point you're sticking to. Universities have code of ethics. There's a student con book that students need to follow. Certain behaviors we need to do in order to stay matriculated at our university. 
And I think, especially from a university stance, it's about saying, you know, if we're a social justice institution, and then these are the ways we're going to be social justice, right? This is what we expect of our faculty. This is what we expect of our students. And so when universities are doing critical race training, when they're doing diversity training and all these different things, and they're teaching their students about microaggressions, and very quickly for the, our listeners who may not know, microaggressions can be small comments that you say that are rooted in racism, but maybe not sound racism to you because you're not having those experiences. Um, but when we're having these discussions and thoughts and people are having this huge resistance of saying, oh no, this is my free speech. Oh no, why does this matter? I don't believe this. I think one, as a university, you need to have a stance on what you think is right and what you think is wrong. In terms of education, there's no neutrality on the conversation. Either you're upholding white supremacy or you're breaking it down and dismantling it. I don't see one way or the other, really, quite frankly, of you need to pick a stance. I agree. I, I agree. Yeah. You know, I agree. And, and even at the levels that we tackle it, right? So at the individual level, right, of individual rights and mm -hmm. things like that versus I think we're and, and I'm not saying one we need to do one or the other. I think that we need to be working at all these different levels, but at the policy, procedure, university system-wide, you know, sort of level, right, are these other levels. And so there are some people that want to work at the individual level, but I think you need to be aware of all of the other levels um, of policy procedures and things like that that go on every day. And there are probably a lot of things that I don't need, I'm not even aware of, but absolutely Jamil, that we either need to understand that we are either dismantling or perpetuating. And for those that have a problem, then they need to examine personally first, right? There's some internal personal work that they need to do, right? And maybe they're right, it's not time for them. Everybody's not gonna mm -hmm. be on board. And that's the other message, right? That everybody is not going to be on board. But if they're not on board, right, how can we help them to sort of even analyze? And maybe maybe some of them won't. That, once again, speaks to that point I made initially about perfectionism, right? Does everybody have to be on board mm -hmm. is the question, right? Or do we need herd immunity, right? Mm. <laughs> yes, just immunity. enough of us on board. That is what we need, herd immunity. That's a great metaphor. Right? So do, does everybody have to be on board or do we just need herd mm. immunity? Meaning we need to have enough to change the, the culture, right? So I can tell you that I know that there's still people that, I, I you know, because I see it when I'm walking on campus, well, when we used to be able to walk on campus, but that's coming. Um, you know, I know that just because we're smoke-free doesn't mean that there's nobody on campus smoking, but there's enough people, mm -hmm. right, that are now, right, tapping into this culture that we're trying to build or create. Kind Let of me ask this, um, you know, one conversation that I've heard a lot is between, you know, folks who are like, all right, we're not changing hearts and minds, we need to change. We'll change policy, uh, move things forward. And then there are other folks who are like, well, look what's happened when hearts and minds are not changing. We see you know, violence, white supremacy perpetuating. Um, I don't think it's an either or, but I also know that shame-based approaches, attitudes, and if we're doing that through shame, whether we're talking about safer sex or how to act in the pandemic, that shame or how to not be racist, shame doesn't work as an approach. I mean, what would you say in terms of the, the question between hearts and minds um, and then just changing policy? I don't think it's an either or. I think it's mm -hmm. a both, right? That there are some that are going to be working on changing hearts and minds because they do it well and they do it effectively. <laughs> They've got the right speech, right? Um, to to be able to to do that work, right? That's not for everybody. And then there are people that will be effective on the policy and other levels. So for me, it's not an either or. I think it's it's going to take all of it, right? It's going to take all of it. Um, yeah, and then I, I'm not sure, Casey, you can correct me, you know, when you start talking about shame and guilt. I can't control people's feelings of shame and guilt, right? Mm -hmm. But if they are experiencing shame and guilt, that there might that might just indicate that there's some work to be done there, right? Kind of thing. This work is not comfortable. Absolutely. Right? Because BIPOC people haven't been comfortable for 
400 years here in the United States. So. And I think that speaks to perfectionism too, you know, deeply related to uh, needing to or wanting to feel comfortable all the time, having a lifetime of feeling pretty comfortable. Um, yep. and, it, and, and learning is uncomfortable, period. Changing behavior, changing attitude, that is really, it's uncomfortable, you know? And, and right. the, the question is, um, or maybe it's not even a question, but what's happening is that people are more concerned with that feeling of discomfort than they are about rectifying injustice and seeing BIPOC people thriving. And that's, right. to me, the heart of the problem. I've been speaking about this for a couple of times, a couple of different platforms now. I think some of the issues is, especially with accepting around race-based work, right? Learning about white, white privilege, learning about white supremacy, learning about microaggressions and all these different things. I think the hesitation there is quite a few different things happening at once. You know, you have people that are saying, oh no, this can't be it. I don't have privileges. You see that across the board with all privileges, with citizenship, with gender, sure. with sexuality. You see that is a first initial reaction. I lived my entire life one way, and this is what happened to me, and I don't see how this fits with your narrative or what you're telling me is happening to others. Like, I'm looking through this very small, narrow window. And so you have that first initial shock mm -hmm. value. And then... If you start to kind of accept that, you go, wait a minute, maybe I was wrong during several moments of my life. You know, then people start having the feelings of, oh my God, am I a bad person? Am I one of those people? Is that me? And I think we are in a unique position as a university, right? How many times will students be able to be in a learning environment like this? We're not talking about environments where you're in the workplace you know, somehow progressively past your life, we are educating students every day. And if we can educate students on math, science, and everything else, we should be able to educate students on race, you know, how to have civility, how to understand privilege, how to dismantle these things. There's no better place to do it on a university level. Because if we can't do that as a university, in a space like this in higher education with access to technology, access to books, access to researchers, then where else can this work exist? Yeah, and since we're at a university, right? I, I understand and I agree, right, that this work, but you know, Jamil, I'll, I'll just say that I also think that this work starts a lot earlier, mm. right? Just to know, one of the eye-opening things here on the university campus for me was, you know, there are some committee work that you have to do at some point while you're here, while you're going up for tenure, and we could have a whole nother show about promotion to tenure. Um, I had to be on a committee, and there, and I and I have to go to these committees, and I went to this one committee in particular. I'm not sure if if I should say what it is, but. Let's say I'm tenured now. So UCF, well, UCF is one of our curriculum, university curriculum forums or whatever. And everything that you want to change about teaching and curriculum has to go through this committee. And I decided that I wasn't going to go anymore to those meetings because in one of the meetings, when we were still face to face before shutdown, uh, one, of, one of the colleagues there when we were talking about giving some courses and classes social justice de designation, um, voiced their opinion, right, which they have a right to do, voiced their opinion that if we were to go that way, that we would be inciting violence hmm. by giving courses designation. And I remember being in the back of the room, you know, and I did that, mm, mm -hmm. right? Like, first of all, one of the things that struck me was that nobody had anything to say. Hmm. Nobody spoke up. We're talking about a social justice designation, right? And I was like, hmm, let me see here. Nobody had anything to say. Nobody doesn't think mm -hmm. that what this guy said, nobody wants to challenge him or, or question him. Not even challenge, just ask him a question, right? Like, where's this coming from kind of thing? And then I, I left that meeting. I said, I'm not going back. I can't take any more, right? Like that was that was my 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 the end yes. of my journey. End of the tolerance, there, right? Yeah. Uh, so so it let me know, right? And I at the time I wasn't tenured, 
I was like, hmm, do I want to have that reputation of, of going against somebody who looks like they've been here for a long time kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, I'll wait. This is, not, this is not the battle right here and now for me, right? But I'm not going back to that, right? <laughs> um, as a, a Black faculty member here on campus in higher education. And it struck me, I think out of all of it, struck me the most that nobody said anything. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it, it it means that I'm a that was an unsafe space for me. You are touching on a point in which I feel a lot of Black professionals can relate to, that I can relate to as a Black student, being in spaces, especially where you are the only one, right? And something goes wrong, and people say things, and your peers around you don't speak up. This is not a unique experience. This happens in classrooms and our committee meetings. I sit in plenty of them. And so I've had some of these same exact reactions to that. And especially if you don't have any type of protections or like you are some of the lower tier person in the room, it's hard to speak up against that. And so it really leads me perfectly into the next question of what is it like being a black professional on this campus? And I think that was kind of part of the answer right there. But um, if you want to expand yeah. on what it's like being a black professional. Yeah, well, I think part of it is, is you know, depending on what, what level you are, right? So um, like I said, one of the key factors that I said in that example is, you know, um, I wasn't tenured, right? So, you know, pretty early on, thank goodness, you know, having the experiences that I've had on the outside I learned that, you know, what tenure means and and what some of the benefits of tenure are and what what it means to have a reputation. When you go up for tenure, at least here at our university, you're going up, your your file is going up in front of people who may not necessarily know you, but may have heard some things. And it matters what they have heard, right? So we started off by Casey giving me a great compliment, one of the greatest that you can give me kind of thing. I'm sure we'll get back to that. (laughs) You you don't want to be known as someone who someone thinks is going to incite violence on campus, right? You know, like there are people, it just just sort of, you know, my eyes opened. I was like, oh, there's people on campus that actually think that way. Okay. You know, I was like, okay, you know. So that wasn't my battle to fight right then and there, right? As a Black professional here on our campus or in higher ed, it's been a real learning experience for me. But the learning lessons are lessons that you learn as a Black person, or many people learn, I'm not saying everybody, but many people learn um, growing up in the United States being Black. There are lessons mm-hmm. you already know, right? So sometimes stuff happens, things happen, and I'll be like, oh, okay, that's just, you know, we, we, we're used to that kind of stuff, right? Um, and not necessarily committee meetings, but within our own departments kind of thing too. So, but for me, it is refreshing um, that we're beginning to do this work. We're beginning to at least to have those conversations and, but yeah, have I had, had, plenty of um, instances where I felt dismissed. I felt like I was invisible. I felt like I was being targeted. You know, I, do I still have those? Yeah. Yeah. It, it is not easy, right? It is not easy. Um, But I think that, you know, like you said, coming from Bridgeport, being black in the United States, you know, having the experiences that I've had, knowing that my experience particularly is not mm-hmm. every black person's experience as well, right? I don't speak for, I don't want to speak for all of them, but I know that my experience is also common to others, right? So there's a duality. W. E. B. Du Bois talked about this duality that we as black people mm-hmm. have to learn how to live with. And you can either be in front of the veil or behind the veil, he talks about. Um, And I think it's the souls of Black folks. And it's like how you present yourself to a white supremacist world versus how you present yourself, you know, when you're at home. And as a kid, I can remember understanding this through my mother. We would call my mother at work, right? Um, we needed to let her know when we got home and things like that. And so we call our mother at work, my mother at work. 
And this woman would get on the phone and answer the phone. When my mother got on the phone, I, I remember the first time I didn't realize who she was <laughs> on the phone. And then we had a running joke in our family, right? It was like, oh, you've got your white woman voice on. Okay, mm. at work, my mother put on a whole different voice and I didn't know who she was, right? But when she came home, she talked different. And I was like, okay. And then she'd come home and I say, oh, that's my mother's voice that I know, right? Kind of thing. And we've learned that from, from Cradle, right? We've learned some of those lessons from Cradle, you know, unfortunately, I'll just say. But yeah, so I think that around policy and procedure and some of the system-wide work that we can do at the university level can be done to make it better for, for all, but it will also make it better specifically for Black and persons of color, BIPOC people on campus, right? When I think about restorative justice, I think about apology. Mm, yes. I believe that is the first step, right? And it's so hard sometimes for people to do, but it has to be part of the conversation. And it's just not any apology, right? It is apology that comes with authenticity and how, and how that shows up. And then how it moves forward, right? So you can apologize, you know, you know, you it's like being in a family and you apologize to your brother and sister when you're still upset with them versus and then doing, but then if it doesn't, if it's not followed with real work, yep. right, with real meaning and change, then that's not restorative justice as well, right? And so I think that that is all part of I see, you know, restorative justice as part and parcel of anti-racism work. Yes. And there's a public facing part of that too. I mean, private apologies, that's right. wonderful. But are, is there a behavior change? Is there real accountability? And is that in the context of a, a community rather than a, a private interaction? Yeah. Let's, let, let me just give you an example. So in my position that I talked about earlier as the grad coordinator, grad students come to me and they tell me some things. And I'm the kind of person, when you tell me something, I need to figure out if I can do something about it, right? If I can help you, that's just the kind of person I am, right? Or if I can get some clarity about it and things like that. And so one of the things I realized, even as the coordinator, that when students see me, especially students of color, right, I'm going to represent something to them that maybe other people before didn't represent, Other, if it was if it was a white person, it is a burden sometimes, but then it is also, my, it is a burden as well as it is a blessing to be able to be here. I know what, what, what my, my being in this position means, but it also comes with some responsibility, accountability, and a burden. Part of what I've experienced just recently because of this role is there is a responsibility and accountability. I want to be able, when a student comes to me and talks about something that they faced in class with a professor or something that, or, or act of discrimination or what they feel. And now, right, we've got students because of this work, because of this anti-racism work that can vocalize and understand and recognize so much more like a Jamil, right? So much more now than ever before what they are experiencing when it comes to white supremacy, right? And so, if it was sexual harassment, I know what to do on campus about that. If it was, you know, a Title IX issue or something like that, or a title, right, I'd know what to do or where to go or who I could seek help out. Now with Diane, I'm hoping that there's going to be a place, right, that I can go, you know, as we, you know, because I know she just got here, as we sort of work out, you know, processes and procedures, right, that we can ultimately go with discrimination, right? With claims of discrimination and racism, right? Or whatever else, you know, sort of the DEI, um, human resources and all of that create. And I know that understanding the rules, right? Like I could have a cold conversation with you guys about rules, right? And people who talk to me about rules. I, I don't like rules all the time. <laughs> I'll just say that real quietly because I believe sometimes rules are made up and people change rules when they want to change rules, right? And sometimes rules are made to keep people in their place, right? And I'm not one of those that is always, as you can see from my background, 
been someone who has stayed in their place. <laughs> um, I list some of those adjectives around emotions and feelings and things like that, that I know probably not every one of my colleagues would agree with, but many of my colleagues would agree with. I wrote a poem after the George Floyd thing because of everything that was rising up in me about how I was feeling and what you know people were doing and things like that. And so um, it did get published in a, a blog that we have, a creative blog that we have through CLP, but I'd like to be able to see if I can publish it quote unquote, in a scholarly journal, right? Um, and those kinds of things. Um, yeah, and it was all about those words that we heard George Floyd talk about, about I can't breathe, right? Um, and I, you know, I have had lots of faculty, fellow colleagues talk about their exhaustion, mm -hmm. right? Their sheer exhaustion with doing doing the work that we do. Um but also it's very important um, to figure out ways that you replenish yourself, right? So there's a quote, I can't think about who whose quote it is, but there is a quote that comes to mind sometimes for me when I'm exhausted like that. Besides, you know, we could talk about biblical scripture and stuff like that, but, um, but there's a quote that talks about, it's okay to get tired, but you are not expected to give up the fight. Right. You can't walk away from the fight. You can get tired. You can take a rest, but you're not expected to give up the fight. Very right? much. So it just it really strikes me as you're talking, uh, you know, how much work that you have done in your life, how much you do, uh, you know, talking to Jamil at night, talking to students, you know, doing whatever you need outside of the boundaries of your your job. You're just an exemplary teacher. Um, and also your work is spreading in all these different areas. You're a vibrant scholar, human being. And I just think about that committee meeting. And I think about how often the, the folks who are throwing out these comments, they're not doing even, I, I just, it's almost not comparable. The kind of um, what you bring to campus, what you bring to our community versus what folks who are often throwing out these damaging comments do just the the disparity there is really striking to me yeah thank you thank you and you know i sort of see it as the things i do the things i bring the things that i'm involved with either on or off campus many times i find myself in situations where i'm saying okay i don't understand why i'm here right so i went at to 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 central two summers ago, did a training, became a implicit bias trainer, 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 right? And I was sitting in this training with, uh, with judges and police people and social workers from all over Connecticut. And I said to myself, okay, how did I get on this list? <laughs> right? Like how, but then there are things like that that happen to me. And I say, okay, Later on, at some point, I know that it's going to come into service. And I say that specifically, that the things that I know, the knowledge that I gain, the situations that I'm in usually are revealed for the service of my students. So I just became the chair of the board of directors for the Community Health Network of Connecticut Foundation. And I've been on this board for a number of years and I see it as the service that I do in order to help my students. Many of my students have been able to have internships. I've got two or three students already working at that organization, right? And in the parent organization as well, right? They, they're always asking for interns and things like that. And I say, okay, this is why I need to be here, right? because there are students that need to be able to see how this organization runs or to do this important work that an organization is doing. And so a lot of service, whether it's in the traditional sense as a black higher ed, you know, educator versus, you know, the work we've been doing most of our lives. I 100% agree with that, but I would also say it's something much bigger as well, right? When we're talking about this specifically in terms of Black history and Black faculty and having faculty of color, representation for students is extremely important. 
it is hard to dream to be a doctor, but you don't know a black doctor. Yeah. It is hard to be mm -hmm. a first generation student and a black student at a predominantly white institution and not have faculty that look like you. It's hard to pursue degrees when you don't know people that look like you that have those degrees. And so for me, meeting professionals and meeting folks that have PhDs like you, Dr. Evan, you know, having these advanced degrees, it means the world because you are no longer alone. You are no longer in isolation because you know that there's others around you that you can physically look at and say, they did it, so can I. And representation across right. the board is important. So when people are in these meetings and certain things are said, more eyes are rose. And I think there's a common line of a lot we're talking about, you know, what can black faculty get that will make this experience and our campus more comfortable where folks have a sense of belonging and listening to this conversation, it sounds like we need a few things. It sounds like we need a actual protocol where folks can report issues and they can be some type of process. I'm not sure what that would look like, but that can be a discussion on a actual institutionalized process for biases and racism and things of that nature, but also ensuring that we have enough faculty with tenure that are people of color. We need to have faculty of color with protections, mm -hmm. job security, yeah. actual equity in the university, it sounds like. Jamil, I 100% agree with you. And so I've had these conversations with some of my friends in administration. We could start off by doing something just as simple as having a, 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 a place, whether it be a website or something where black faculty and staff are listed, you know, because historically, right, the history is that people mm. fear when black mm. people come together, right? Like, why do we need to list them all? Right. Because so that there could be a place where students would know or when I'm looking to see, you know, who someone is in the registrar's office or something like that, that I can reach out to them. Because now what happens is I go somewhere on campus and I see a black person I'm like, hey, how you doing? Like, where are you? Where you work? You know, kind of thing. And we do it bit by bit by bit. And that's the division that keeps us right separated versus what would it hurt if we just had a place? Right, that we could be be listed, and it could be optional. Doesn't you know? But I love that idea. Because I had Something such a hard time like finding black faculty to take their course. My freshman year, I did not know a single black faculty member right. that worked here. They worked here. I just never met them. Never knew they existed. Mm -hmm. Right. It took till my sophomore year to actually yeah. meet black faculty, yeah. and it took till last semester for me to take a class with a black faculty member in it. And I had to take it outside of my department wow. and I had to actually get departmental permission to get into that course. And I think there's something to be said about wow. having a list of black faculty that since I have not had to had the privilege of being in a class with one, I'd have been able to go to their office hours to visit them, to meet them, to ask them questions about this new space I'm in, to get connected to them. If we could have our program once a year where we could all get in the same room with each other and talk and network and reimagine higher education together, I think would be such a beautiful thing. Absolutely. Um, even before my tenure days, one of the things I did was um, at the end of every semester, spring semester, I usually do something where all the people that I know that are on campus um, whether it be staff or faculty, I invite them to a sister circle writing group, at least women. And I remember in the first couple of times that I did that, um, and the last time I did it, I got a social justice grant, so I want to thank the university for that. But the last time I did that, um, I remember early on, people asked me, they were like, Marion, why are you doing this? Why is it just black faculty? Why is it just black women or just black faculty and staff coming together? And then as the word got out, I had people coming from Central and Yukon and women from, because there is something that is refreshing for us when we can come together just to sit and write. And why would anybody think that that is a problem? That leads us to something that we want to ask all of our guests. And you've been very, um, 
you know, forward and future thinking. I mean, I, in just in your work, creating pathways for students. One thing we want to talk to everyone about is in your most radical imagining, what does the university feel like? Whether that is mm -hmm. 20 years from now um, mm -hmm. and, and you're getting in it with the, the writing circle, but what is in your most wild imagining, what kind of future do you want to create for the university? What would it feel like to be there? Ooh, okay. So there's two things here, feelings versus and, and, and imagination, right? So interesting because we I just listened to Dr. Siobhan Carter-David the other night do a piece on Afrofuturism. Um, so that was, that was very interesting. But so one of the things, the reason why I'm here at Southern is because of the diversity in our classroom, right? That, that, that we get that, that's important and mm -hmm. we need to do more of it, right? Um, I love being able to come into my classroom and see all, all of my students. And we would have more of that in the future. We would have more of that without mm -hmm. labels, right? So we would not need the label of a Hispanic serving institution or a minority serving institution or all of that, right? So we would have more of that, but without the labels. Mm. There is a, right? There's a liberation in, in, in without labels, right? Because we, and that would mean that we've done the work, right? Um, that we, if, if we do the work, students would wanna come because they know us as that, mm. a campus of liberation. Mm -hmm. Imagine that, wow, and what that could look like. And that really shows the importance of this work because if we could be a university that is looked at as liberation for students, right? Looked at as liberation for faculty and staff, this space of unity, this space of progress. Imagine how many more students would attend SCSU. Imagine how many faculty would be attracted mm -hmm. to come to SCSU, how powerful and how great of a university we could be if we were able to enter into that space. And so DEI work, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion work is not just for feelings. It also has real world implications and can be monumental and change the lives of all of us, not just marginalized folks and really be a space where we could all feel comfortable, loved, and a sense of belonging. And while I'm speaking on this, I also want to let you all know that we have now a website. On the website, you can now look at um, the Division of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, and there is plenty of resources. There are, th this podcast lives there. You can see this podcast with the links. There is resources for classrooms, for students, for staff. There's resources around the Multicultural Center, the Sage Center, all types of different things. So please give it a check out. There's going to be videos that you can use if you're a faculty for your classroom, and it will be growing throughout the months and over the semester. Things will be added, videos will be added, content will be added. So if you have not seen it yet, please give it a check out. Yes, very much. Thank you right. so much. Dr. Thank you, Evans. Dr. Evans, for joining us today. First guest on Real Talk. First guest, yes. Casey, it was really um, nice to meet you um, and to know that I have yes, a positive reputation yes, that, that precedes me. I also want to say as we're wrapping up, um, <laughs> you know, Jamil and I are the divas behind the mic, but there is a whole podcast team behind this, uh, you know, conversations, also putting this together and getting this podcast out to listeners. So thank you to our podcast team, Diana Riza. Andrina Barajas, Gian Chan, Renee DaCosta, Megan McAdams, Allison O'Leary, and Ken Sweeten. So thank you all so much, and we will see you next week.